you know, certainly, you know, we stand with Ground Game and lots of organizations like them on, on lots of issues. Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about a proposed vacancy tax in Los Angeles, numbers from the new California state budget, parking laws in Los Angeles, sheriff's deputies killing three black or brown men over the course of 24 hours, and the final Los Angeles Police Commission's decision on the Trader Joe's shootout from last summer. <sighs> How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going all right. Uh, I wanted to start off with a little bit of a, uh, an off-brand shout-out. Uh, some friends of mine from my former place of work, Defy Media, have been able to not get their old channel, Clever, started, but to, to sort of take the same idea and get control of it themselves. So Jocelyn Davis and Lily Marston are heading up. Uh, Shared Media is the name of it. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, they're really, really kick-ass boss ladies, and they're trying to make a very female-forward, female-friendly channel. And I'm really excited to see them like being able to get their creative juices back from like basically having a giant corporate overload uh, screw them over and destroy their channel for no good reason other than a bunch of like white male executives are bad at the internet. So if you do get the chance and you're interested in all sorts of fun pop culture ch things, check them out. It's called Our Shared Channel. Uh, and they're going to be on YouTube in the next couple of weeks. And if you want to, you can check out the write-up in uh, The Hollywood Reporter about how they did this. And one of the cool things is that they didn't take any investment funding. They're funding this all themselves, taking a huge risk and also trying to make sure they own it. So uh, I'm pretty happy about it. As normie as it is, it's cool to see friends doing stuff. No, that sounds super cool, dude. Yeah, how was uh, your day? You did quite a bit of th quite a few things you, uh, out there today. Yeah, today has been pretty busy. We uh, we patched up a uh, a parking lot for the uh, the Safe Parking LA program at uh, an Episcopal church um, off of Normandy over in Koreatown. Uh, basically they had a big pothole that had been, uh, getting worse over time and it was something that had been patched up. I think it was a year or two ago and it was in time, it was time for it to be patched again. This is a facility where folks are, uh, who have recently, uh, in most circumstances have recently lost their homes and are, are, are having to live out of their car. Uh, this facility gives them a safe place to be able to sleep in their car at night. Uh, they're able to show up at eight 30 in the evening. They're, they're able to stay there until six 30 at night or 6.30 the next morning, rather, and uh, they have a security guard who's there. Uh, they have access to uh, bathroom facilities, mm -hmm. um, and genuinely, it's just like it's a, it's a little pocket of almost normalcy that allows people to, to get their feet back under themselves and uh, be able to save up a little bit of money for that, for that first deposit uh, for their rent and hopefully get themselves back into a situation where they're going to be housed again. Uh, it's also an opportunity for them to start interface, interfacing with the uh, consolidated en enrollment system, uh, the CES, which is how homeless folks are brought into services that are available through the city uh, and various outreach organizations that you know we pay, uh, we give a bunch of money to, to support them. Yeah. Uh, so this is, it's a good program and it's a great way to help get people who are just recently becoming homeless or who are in, in certain... Um, temporary situations of uh, instability, it really helps to get them back on their feet. So it was really cool to be able to go and help 
secure that for this church that just cannot afford to do the resurfacing themselves. And this was something that was in the news this week because on Tuesday the council had a vote and they voted 12 to 1 with a couple of abstentions uh, to oppose AB 516, which would make it harder to do predatory towing if people basically don't have enough money to like pay their registration or if their car is left parked for too long. Uh, the city council kind of uh, showed their true colors there, but we did have one person oh, yeah. who voted to say we should support AB 516, and that was Mike Bonin, yep. and we're going to talk about him right now because he's also got this really cool vacancy tax idea. Yeah, so, and we'll probably mention uh, some more stuff about AB 516 uh, again later here, but for analysis, so jump straight into the empty homes tax. Uh, so on Tuesday, City Councilman Mike Bonin, alongside Marquise Harris-Dawson, introduced a motion to begin studying a tax on empty homes within the city. Uh, I was actually able to stand alongside both councilmen, as well as some of our unlikely allies, on this measure from Abundant Housing Los Angeles. Hey, even, even Yimbies know a good idea when they hear it. <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Uh, no, no, it was it was good. This was uh, this was something that everybody everybody understood. Is it, it's something that really just fundamentally makes sense, unless of course you are from someone from the uh, California Apartments Association, uh, in which case this sounds like a terrible terrible idea to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so during the press conference, the the estimated one hundred and eleven thousand vacant homes within the city limits were mentioned frequently in contrast to the 36,300 unhoused Angelinos. Uh, and now one, one particular example was there was a reporter who asked a question about uh, basically insinuating that we were going to be moving uh, homeless folks from that 36,300 number into these uh, multi-million dollar condos that are sitting vacant uh, at the metropolis and other buildings of its type. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> like we should do that well, one. I, I I think that there's definitely some space to be looked at for that one when it comes to uh, pushing some laws at City Hall. I don't think there's going to be any traction whatsoever. But womp that's womp. not what this bill was proposed for. And uh, it was just kind of funny hearing that people really just have not heard of what a vacancy tax is before this. And so it was kind of fun to be up there and actually getting to talk to people about this for the first time and explaining how in places like um, like up in Vancouver, they've had this for a little while now, and it's it's been really pretty effective. It brought in, I think it was something between 30 and $40 million uh, in in funding for... Uh, to provide to provide funding for homeless services within the city, and it's it's a pretty low tax from from what I understand. It like is, in Vancouver, it's like one percent. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's even at that small value, it's it seems to be working pretty well. And there's also some kind of fun stories that you can go read. I think Bloomberg actually had one about a bunch of uh, college kids renting out a multi million dollar home for not that much money because it was more important for the homeowner to be able to rent it out and not pay the tax on this ridiculously expensive home uh, than it was to just be like, well, these college kids might not really treat this home as well as we want, but eh, that's what security deposits are for. So these, <laughs> these kids are getting to live it up in a, uh, in a, a basically a, a small palace uh, in Vancouver for a not super huge amount of rent, which is kind of one of those things that hopefully we'll get to see happen here in Los Angeles. If, uh, if you don't want to live in it, then you know, rent it to somebody. That's kind exactly. of the whole point. So uh, during the press conference, Councilman Harris Dawson told reporters that, quote, this measure simply says, if you want to have a housing unit in the city while we're in this crisis and you insist on keeping it vacant, you are going to participate in helping us solve this problem, end quote. 
Harris Dawson continued, quote, we have buildings all over the city, some of whom, some of them very close to where we stand right now, where they're vacant because the price they're asking is inconsistent with what people can pay, end mm-hmm. quote. So that's very true. I mean, I, I can see these vacant homes every night as I'm walking around in downtown. You can see all of these places that are, 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 are popping up and they just sit there and nobody's living in them. This is something that's very reminiscent of what you see in places like Manhattan and in parts of London uh, where folks are coming in and they're buying up these homes and they're using it just as an investment vehicle to either launder money or just be gambling on the stock uh, on the uh, on the real estate market because it's so much there's so much capacity for return that even if you know something goes a little bit wrong in most circumstances they're going to end up coming out ahead and in a lot of cases uh there's you know very minimal property taxes associated with it uh especially here in LA where we we don't you know charge your your property tax can only go up by uh 2% per year at most um meanwhile the value of your home might appreciate by 5 or 10% each year so it really is it's time that we do something about this. Well, and it's also one that gets into like Jeff Bridges got got dinged by the state for this for taking a, a home that oh, he inherited yeah. and turning it into an incredibly expensive rental property while paying incredibly low property taxes. And you yeah, know Thomas uh, he's Piketty, still paying those low property taxes. Yeah, but he but it's it, there are some he fixes did get that they're out in the LA Times. <laughs> yeah, there are some fixes that have been proposed at the state level. But uh, as Samuel Stein and Thomas Piketty pointed out, you know when you're trying to figure out where global wealth of the one percent is stacked. It's stashed in property. Like, there's a lot of good ways that you can turn excess liquidity into an investment that you're not going to have to pay a lot of taxes on and that you're able to cash out in ways through various LLCs and stuff. And if you look at the way that the Trump organization has made their money and the way that they've operated and been able to somehow constantly be declaring bankruptcy, but also constantly have like hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal, it's by basically laundering money through these expensive condos. And when you look at who the owner is, it's just a paper owner. It's some LLC that's owned by a different LLC that's owned by a different LLC. It's kind of, you know, our, our financial reality across the globe is just Panama Papers all the way down. And this is a good yeah, way to start exactly like... that's going to mention. <laughs> yeah, this is a good way to start pulling that out. I also think it, it just sort of points out the bald-faced greed of a lot of these folks where even a tiny tax is going to you know, make them begrudgingly want to rent it just because they don't want to be paying money to the state for things that pay for schools and roads and firefighters. Uh, And that's a different discussion to be had. But this is like a really exciting opportunity for L.A. to begin trying to incentivize through the market, uh, creating housing out of stock that's already there. Like we don't have to break ground or fight with NIMBYs when the house is already built and it's just sitting there empty because the landlord wants $5,000 a month instead of the $3,000 a month that somebody could pay for it. Absolutely. So one of the things that's interesting about this particular motion is that it was uh, it was seconded by Councilman Mitchell Farrell, who is the chair of the council's Homeless and Poverty Committee. Um, that's actually where the motion was originally going to be headed, but City Council President Herb Wesson moved the motion on Wednesday over to the council's Housing Committee, uh, which it's interesting to see, you know, w- which which set of logic it was that led to that decision, because I can easily see it being placed in either one, honestly, Mm -hmm. Uh, given that the revenue from the taxes is is mostly 
uh, well, absolutely should be spent on on alleviating homelessness and poverty. That's kind of the yeah. whole point of the tax. Um, but it does also apply to housing. However, I'm really hoping that we're going to be able to push this to include commercial properties as well so we can really start to tackle blight, uh, mm-hmm. in which case housing is not the appropriate place for this to go. But regardless, um, the housing committee is chaired by Gil Cedillo, so we need to make sure that Gil Cedillo knows uh, just how important this measure really is, this motion really is, and we do not let him forget to move it forward or anything else. No stall tactics allowed on this one. It yeah. needs to happen. It needs to move forward. We want to get it up. Uh, there's, we're, we're hoping to get it on the ballot here. I believe it, uh, Mike Bonin had said he wants it up on the ballot in this coming March. Um, but originally, he had a- apparently been planning on having it in November. So we'll, we'll see. In either of those uh, elections, there's probably going to be a pretty hefty turnout uh, for the more progressive voters. And that's what is going to absolutely be necessary in order to make a tax like this actually get through. It's a lesson that we learned with Measure EE is low turnout elections are really bad for taxes, Uh, especially special taxes, because thanks to Prop 13 and the Howard Jarvis uh, tax center, you need a 66 (laughs) percent supermajority to pass a new tax or a new special tax. Thank you, Howard Jarvis. Thank you so much. They hate everything good, um, but it, it's it's this is one that I think is going to have a lot of of uh, purchase in the state because it's not a property tax that's going to hit people who are living in their homes. It's only going to hit landlords, and those are people who own multiple properties and constitute a a very 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 small minority of actual property owners. Absolutely. Here and it, you know when houses aren't occupied, they do tend to like fall by the wayside. They do tend to become blighted. Uh, the city has had to sue several banks and investment firms who bought up a lot of cheap real estate after 2008 and then decided that they didn't want to pay the cost of upkeeping these foreclosed houses. So it's something that's got a lot of pressure points for the people who are really um, benefiting from our, our you know current housing crisis and also like, to, sla- or like to, to gobble up cheap real estate and then charge as much as they possibly can for it. On this same note, Mike Bonin on Friday also put forward a short-term rental regulation, which is also a really, really cool um, uh, proposition that could help bring some more housing that, again, is already built, but like bring it to the market and get people living in it. Yeah, so on Friday, Bonin put forward this motion that's asking the city officials to create a new ordinance that would protect rent-controlled buildings from being used for short-term rentals. The motion would require that any unit that is regulated by Los Angeles's Rent Stabilization Ordinance, RSO, that's a term that you hear us use all the time because it's honestly some of the most important housing stock that we have in the city. Um, it would require that any building, any unit that's regulated under the RSO have a minimum of 12, has a minimum of a 12-month lease, uh, so no more month-to-month, and it would stop these units from being able to be used as short-term corporate housing and for any other kind of short-term housing like with uh, Airbnb, although technically I believe that under the Airbnb rules that were uh, hashed out over the last three years, uh, yeah. actually, no, it's four years now, uh, which come into effect in July, uh, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to put any any Airbnb uh, activity going on in any of these RSO protected buildings, which again, those are buildings that were built prior to October 1978. So we're not talking and, to anything new and fancy here, folks. Yeah, and and, and also just to, to clarify real quick, um, the 12 month lease would be the initial lease. So like in in a lot gotcha. of buildings, I'm sure y'all have have had this. You know, after your first year, your landlord's like, hey, you're now month to month, and that sort of you know makes sense for a couple of reasons. But so when you mm-hmm. first sign the lease on a building you just moved into, it would have to be a 12 month lease. So you 
you wouldn't be able to do these short term like, hey, I'm coming for, you know, three months because I'm here on a corporate job doing consulting or whatever it is that people in corporations do. And I only need this place for three months. And so they sign, you know, a month to month lease with you off the bat. And so this would stop a lot of like already existing units from being converted into, you know, temporary residential facilities. It would have to be uh, looking down the long term. Um, I'm sure landlords will come up with all sorts of interesting ways to try and get around this, but hopefully the ordinance will be drafted in a way to like stop that from happening. Yeah, so this is coming on the heels of some reporting that came out of the LA Times where they were talking about an $1,800 a month unit in Hollywood that was turned over into a $3,300 a month uh, short-term rental by the landlord as a fully furnished corporate living solution. Um, it's estimated that Los Angeles loses, I mean, that's what they call them here in downtown. I see it all over the place, especially at your favorite one level. Uh, (laughs) yeah, we'll talk about level again here at some point. Uh, I think we talked about the bunch previously on this, on the recording, on the first recording we did a year before the, uh, the gremlins of computers decided to eat everything for us. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go off on level again, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's estimated that Los Angeles loses 5,000 rent controlled units per year to Ellis Act conversions. Uh, though the actual number may be higher as Los Angeles doesn't actually have any mechanism for uh, vacancy control, meaning that once a tenant moves out, there's really no limit on how high the landlord can set the rent for the next tenant that moves in. Yeah. Um, as of right now, this motion in particular that Bonin has introduced will only apply to RSO buildings, which, uh, again, it must have been built prior to October 1978, so it will probably have little effect on other short-term rental schemes in the city like those over at Level. Yeah, and level for for folks that aren't uh, aren't familiar with it is basically a corporate housing building. Uh, they rent like very nice pre-furnished units for incredibly high sums, but only for a few months at a time. And there, when I say like for very high sums, the the top two floors of that building are a are one penthouse. It's got like five bedrooms, a pool, like two different bars. Like it's insane. I, I cut a video to like show it off to try and rent to folks. They ask $125,000 a month for the penthouse. And as far as anyone can tell, it's never been rented. That is absolutely insane. Yeah, absolutely you could move insane. a couple of families in there and they would be perfectly fine with all of the, the neo-modern furniture that you could shake a stick at. But like with Level, they're sitting on incredibly valuable real estate in the middle of downtown. The building has very low, vac- it has very low tenancy rates overall, uh, but they're not forced to actually treat their units as residential because they're sort of existing in a gray area where they're not completely legal as a hotel, but they're not completely illegal as short-term living. And they they pay the taxes. So the city sort of like lets them slide on it, even though there are like several Absolutely. hundred units in that building that could become long-term homes for folks. And they have a couple of competitors that are also in downtown all sort of in that that same corridor and it's it's becoming something where you know when we're building stuff especially when you see all the cranes going up around downtown you have to constantly be asking who are they building it for because for the most part they're not building it for you or for families and as we're seeing LAUSD see declining numbers in enrollment because families are moving out, we really kind of have to, to ask ourselves, who are we building this effing city for? Um, and who we're building it for right now is people who have a lot of money, who have corporate expense accounts, who don't have families or any long-term ties to the community. And that's not a super healthy way to build a city. You know, I've talked about how creepy I find parts of San Francisco where you have single-family home neighborhoods that don't have any children around. And that's just kind of weird and kind of strange. Yeah, um, that doesn't. That doesn't yeah. Sound right. 
There was a terrible article about, um, or it may have been a Twitter thread talking about how San Francisco and LA can become like the new academies, and like you don't go there to live, you like grow up in oh, like yeah, one of the that flyovers. Was on, and that then, was on San Francisco. It was yeah, bad. but it, it'll apply to LA soon. But like you come to these cities oh, to like sure. you know go to college and spend a decade here, like quote unquote networking, and then when you want to go start your life, you move elsewhere Build to go your actually start your life, <laughs> and that's just a horrible way to think about <sighs> cities, especially when we're yeah. trying to to build more density and trying to get people to. To live in better, more energy efficient urban environments because, again, like this whole climate crisis thing, uh, it's here and it's coming and it's going to fundamentally reshape the way our cities work. Uh, and we either do that willingly in a smart way or it's going to be done for us by the climate reality. Absolutely. But one, one last quick note on level um, I know I've heard. And this is alleged, and I, I apologize if I'm misinformed on this. But my understanding was that level was actually constructed with uh, residential zoning, so it's technically f not at all legal for it to be operating as a hotel. Um, and they were doing the short-term rentals where they were supposed to be doing it at least one month in length for the stays. Uh, but I actually uh, ran into a lovely woman who was visiting Los Angeles from uh, the Netherlands, and she was here because her daughter was involved in an exchange program related to the uh, L.A. Symphony uh, or Ooh. Philharmonic, I believe, one of Fancy. those two. But anyway, she was here doing a, uh, a very cool uh, exchange program related to learning how to be a, a, a world-class conductor. And she was, so she was visiting, and it was uh, a great chance for her mom to come and visit her and see the city and do all of this. And uh, yeah, she was staying at the level for uh, a whopping uh, four nights. So Jeez. something yeah, that there sounds more is like a hotel. Uh, yeah, it absolutely does. And she was actually at the coffee shop that I met her at because she had to uh, run out of the building because there was some kind of a, uh, a fire alarm pulled or uh, I believe she actually had said it was some kind of a bomb situation where like the bomb squad showed up. So I don't know what was going on. Uh, but anyway, I was able to tell her that uh, she was only going to have a little bit of time in Los Angeles and wanted to see the beach, but also wanted to see the city. And it was right after we had had a rainstorm. So either hitting the top of City Hall or uh, heading up to the top of the Wilshire Grand to get a nice view of everything once all of the clouds clear and then hop on the expo line and get out to the beach. So I mean, that is unfortunately. There are some nice things. Yeah, and unfortunately, there are, it, that is a reality around downtown LA where I've seen it happen yeah. a couple of times where somebody just leaves a suitcase outside and like the bomb oh, squad yeah, shows sure up and shuts like down that. like three blocks of downtown LA for they about two hours. It's terrifying to see them rolling through. Yeah, and they, it, you know, I mean, it, it, this is good, but they've it's never turned out to be a bomb, but it's also just, you know, this post 9-11 mindset that we have that's really kind of weird and scary. Um, and like our police are always like super gung ho, but don't worry, folks, we'll, we'll get to all of the, the cops, you guys stuff towards the end of this episode. Yep. Yep. Before we get there, uh, the California state budget, after being proposed in January and then going through what's called the May revision, where they kind of dial it in and set their priorities. And also in, in May is when they actually see what the income tax revenue take is and property tax revenue take is and have an idea of how much money they actually have to play around with um, and can make adjustments. Uh, that's all finally being finalized. Yes, being finalized, being the uh, the key part of that is that it's not done yet. Um the fiscal year here is going to be coming to a close on June 30th, and so nothing is like final final until uh, right about that time. Uh, but on Sunday, June 9th, Governor Gavin Newsom and the Democratic leaders from the state legislature uh, announced that they had more or less uh, finalized what the budget was going to be for this year. The budget is including support for California's low-income adults and children, 
uh, but for some reason is excluding a tax to pay for clean water in distressed communities, which is, uh, again, for some reason to be considered to be controversial. Not really sure what's going on there, but... We'll get and into it some, in a minute. Yeah, there's some very polluted water in some of those communities in California. Thank yes. you, fracking. Yeah, it's it's. let's just stop pumping oil out, but I digress. My state senator, Holly Mitchell, who chairs the Senate's budget committee, was quoted in the LA Times as saying that, quote, in every budget there's a good and could be better, but I think it's a good budget, end quote. So, you know, real reassuring there, Senator Mitchell, but thank you for your job. Um, Newsom had uh, to abandon plans for a proposed $140 million tax on residential, commercial, and agricultural water users that would have gone toward ensuring access to clean drinking water in communities that struggle with access to such resources. The controversy around this tax apparently centers around a concern over the contradiction between an expectedly uh, an expected significant budget windfall and increasing water bills for consumers because why should we have to pay more for something that happens every year like oh i don't know water to make sure that we have consistent access to water for everyone here when we happen to have had this one year of a good budget windfall that is definitely entirely tied to the stock market and not something that's consistent and we can't plan for. And oh my God, everybody, where the hell is the actual planning going on? Well, and, and a lot of this also, <sighs> like when they say consumers, they don't mean you and me. They mean big agricultural consumers, oh, yeah. the, no, the folks that have like the corporate lobbyists to throw some weight around. And that's always they, the big fight we have here in California when it comes to water use. they pay so much less for their water already. I mean, uh. exactly. Well, and it's also, you know, like the state of California is kind of disliked by a lot of our Western regional partners that also use the Colorado River because we've like played a lot of Can't gimmicks and why. games in order to get access to Colorado River water because like we're just really bad at deciding where to use our water. Like almonds and pistachios, not a good use for water. Alfalfa to feed cows, not a good use for water, you know? Yeah. As much as we're the breadbasket of America. Yeah, I mean, I love them, but like, again... Probably not the crop to be growing as a cash crop here, especially for export. But it's it's one of these yeah. things we came to during the the drought, and we're going to be confronting for a long while. That a lot of uh, our agricultural uh, production is owned by investors, and they want to see a good ROI. So that means they're going to plant the most high value crop they can, whether it's sustainable or not. And so when you've got something like almonds that have a 10 to 20 year life cycle, you know, these are folks that invested in almonds when they were hot in like 2010, when the almond market crashed because China started cutting back on how much they were importing a lot of our goods, especially our like luxury food goods. Uh, they don't have any place to sell the almonds, but they still want to get the return on investment. So a lot of folks who jumped into that late are really just eating up our water on a bad investment. But they've got more money to lobby the state than the poor people out in the Central Valley who actually have to deal with the polluted water um, and, and the, the not safe sources from all of the extraction and fossil fuel use and all of that other stuff. So, you know, just whenever we're talking about water stuff, they I notice our politicians tend to put it in terms of like consumers as though it's the individual when what they Stop actually Stop taking mean, long showers, folks. Yeah, that's going to solve it. You know, California's <laughs> residential water usage accounts for like... 15 to 20 percent of our total water usage in the state like you could stop yeah. taking showers and it would absolutely 
not affect no anything impact. at all. You could you could even well, I mean, you know just it would have a pretty impact, pretty good impact on your personal life, but it would not impact the state's water usage. I mean, even if you stopped washing your legs for the rest of your life, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> wash the whole body and don't feel bad about that. If you want to cut back on like actual water usage, stop consuming things like pistachios and almonds, or you know, consume them in a smarter way. <laughs> Yeah, so instead of taxing water usage, what we're going to be doing is using the proceeds from carbon emissions credits, which is another fun topic that we're not going to go too deep into today. (sighs) So that's going to be funding $133.4 million in clean water projects around the state. This this places access to clean drinking water in the climate change portion of the budget instead of in the state's general fund. So, Eh, you know, I I mean, it is what it is. Uh, Let's, yeah. So there was also an agreement uh, that diapers and menstrual products would be sold without sales tax for the next two years. Uh, the duration of the program falls far short. This is, we're just getting back into the budget. This doesn't have anything to do with water. Sorry no. to make it clear on that one. Um, <laughs> the duration of this program, which is uh, providing sales tax-free uh, you know, sales of uh, diapers and menstrual products, uh, lasts for the next two years. And the program uh, duration, they wanted it to be longer uh, the Democratic leaders within the, the legislature wanted it to be longer, but uh, they were not able to get that out of the governor and they had to make concessions. Um, and, you know, it, it's unfortunately they didn't get what they wanted, but at the same time, it is a step in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, let's give it some applause. I mean, it's it's also one where Minor like, golf clap. you know, call me crazy, but I have a feeling that menstrual products and diapers are going to be in demand for more than two years like people will need those really? consistently for a long no. while yeah i know it's crazy right um and it's it's the the fact that we're having to step by step piecemeal away the pink tax is just dumb as shit you know like it's it's absolutely infuriating yeah no it's it's ridiculous especially for me like for somebody who has to buy like a lot of medical supplies for being diabetic and i don't get taxed on most of those it just makes sense that when you have something that's like good for health because like babies need something to poop in and women would like something to deal with their periods that we're then charging a sales tax for things that are necessities um and it's you know, I, we since we've gutted property taxes in the state, since we keep having this feast or famine year with income taxes for the wealthy, we have to find some extractive revenue from regressive taxes. And so that's largely become sales taxes. And that largely yeah. hits people who can't get out of them. Like, you can't really regulate the usage of diapers or menstrual products. Like, those are things that when you need them, you need them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, so uh, additionally... Consensus uh, was reached on allocating more than uh, $1 billion in the budget in new resources to tackle the state's homelessness crisis. Uh, According to the LA Times, this money would be mostly arriving in the form of new grants to local governments and regional homelessness agencies for services such as emergency shelters, rental assistance, and permanent housing construction. Healthcare was also a sticking point in the budget negotiations, with leaders in both houses having to concede on their demands for healthcare covering all Californians. The budget only includes access to Medi-Cal for undocumented immigrants up to the age of 25, Mm -hmm. though original demands had included access to Californians of all ages. Uh, There was a great quote coming from uh, Cynthia Buisa of the California Immigrant Policy Center, who told the LA Times that, quote, the exclusion of undocumented elders from the same health care their U.S. citizen neighbors are eligible for means beloved community members will suffer and die from treatable conditions. It's and also one where this is the, the, the 
a wrong fiscal approach to take. Like we know when people don't have insurance, right? They cost more money because more then you can't see. Yeah, you can't see a primary care physician to get stuff treated preventatively. They end up in the emergency rooms. Yeah, it costs you know thirty to three hundred percent more than it, it it will if people had actual access to doctors. Yeah. Um, they're going to get a lot sicker for somebody like me who's a diabetic and has like a chronic illness. Being locked out of insurance not only guarantees I'm probably going to die a lot sooner, but also that I'm going to cost a heck of a lot more money because I'm probably not going to have that spare cash swishing around in my account, especially if I have a hard time holding a job or if I'm too old to work or I'm too disabled to work. This is you know, kind of a weird one. It, it also, I do have to give some props to them for extending Medi-Cal at least to undocumented immigrants up to the age of 25 because it so pissed good, off yes. the right-wingers. Like, so <laughs> many right-wingers got so angry about the fact that we want to give human beings health care uh, and got super, and they were like, now citizens are less important than undocumented citizens and you're like, or undocumented residents and you're like, well, or, you know, or, we can fix or, that by just giving everyone health care. Like, yeah, everyone could just have health care yep. and then, then we're all okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, but I guess, you know, die mad about that one. Uh, and it's it's a little uh, bit weird. I was going to say it's it's also nice to see that billion dollars in the budget because under Governor Brown, he unlocked an extra $300 million. Uh, Governor Newsom before this, I, see, I'm saying it too, Governor. I still um, love it. Yeah. You yeah, started but, uh, it. It's totally your fault. But uh, Newsom uh, originally seemed to only be uh, – angling to start this new like blue ribbon commission with the mayor of Sacramento, uh, which would be looking into what the state can do. So I'm, I'm really happy to see them unlocking a billion dollars. To keep in mind, though, you know, this is the state of California, which is, is significantly larger than L.A. County and L.A. City. And L.A. County and L.A. City have both pledged two billion dollars over 10 years just through sales taxes in the county and the city, you know, a billion dollars at each level. So it, this is a little bit of weak sauce. Like the state of California has like a 40 yeah. billion dollar budget and we know there are several hundred thousand people that are living without permanent shelter here so a billion dollars especially at the rate we're building shelters and emergency shelters isn't going to go all that far unfortunately like this isn't the moonshot that we need right now no absolutely not and uh thank you for pointing that out that i had almost forgotten about that uh blue ribbon commission that uh the governor newsom uh decided to put out there for talking about how to solve homelessness, um, to which I believe uh, Mr. Mark Ridley Thomas, our, uh, one of our county board of supervisors, uh, he is uh, on that commission, and uh, I'm thrilled to see that he is on that commission, considering that his reaction to the homeless count numbers when they were released in that board of supervisors meeting was to say that he was shocked, which... I'm shocked that he was shocked. Like, what the hell is he paying attention to if he didn't realize that homeless numbers had gone up that much in the county and in the city of Los Angeles? Like, dude, like, really? You're going to be on the Blue Ribbon Commission to deal with homelessness, and you are shocked to see these numbers? Come on. Well, it's also, I think that's also a function of... I think that's also a function of the fact that, like, in a lot of L.A. County, like, the, the county board is five people, and, like, they've got pretty robust offices and staffs, but they have several million people that they're overseeing uh, at an arm's length. And, you know, when you see the kind of money that Mark Ridley Thomas is playing around with, uh, the kind of money that him and his son are able to throw around, you kind of begin to realize, like, these folks aren't walking the streets every day. They're, they're not... 
showing up and seeing what's happening. I remember, you know, to, to tell a real quick story, we were out at the Black Lives Matter vigil uh, in front of Jackie Lacey's yeah, office, no. and uh, Sheila Cool showed up and uh, was kind of confused as to how to get in because the sheriff's office had barricaded the entrance because there was a bunch of people standing around in a circle praying and singing and talking. <laughs> Being extremely threatening. Yeah, and it was just kind of funny to see because one of her staffers suddenly started sprinting around the barricades trying to figure out how to get in, and she had to like go the long way around. But it was also good to know because Sheila Cool doesn't see that stuff most of the time. And fortunately, her staff wasn't on the ball enough to know, hey, you should go in the back entrance to avoid this protest. Um, and that was a good thing to see. Fantastic news for us. Yeah, because like you know, it, our politicians and our electeds, they are just regular people. And like when you as a regular person see something interesting, you take note of it. The same thing applies to them. So bursting that bubble a little bit is is kind of really key. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to try and get more of that and to see what Mark Ridley Thomas does on the Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, especially because he's terming out and so is going to hopefully, well, he he is hoping to take Herb Wesson's seat in the LA City Council race, but we'll see how that one turns out in uh, in CD10. Um, but you know what? Let's, I think he's doing it because he wants to run for mayor eventually, but we'll, we'll see. Everyone wants to run for mayor. I mean, if Eric Garcetti can do it, literally any, you know, starched <laughs> suit in the city of... Los Angeles can can be mayor. Uh, 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 but let's uh, let's move on. So we 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 mentioned uh, yeah, he's our mayor boy, and we love him. Uh, so AB five sixteen went up in front of a city council. Well, AB five sixteen didn't, yeah. but it was like, hey, do we want to like support Correct. the assembly in this one, or do we want to oppose them? So let's talk about that one a little bit, like what AB five sixteen will do and the controversy that erupted around it. Sure. All right. So the short version of AB five sixteen is that basically it would. Uh, ban the towing of vehicles for three different things. One of them is for having your registration be out of date uh, for six months or less. Uh, another one is having five or more parking tickets. And the third and ex apparently extremely contentious issue was having your vehicle parked in the same place for more than 72 hours. Um, the sticking point for all of the city council members apparently was uh, that 72-hour mark. And I do not understand why, because I have certainly left my car uh, while I was in college, parked on the street for more than 72 hours while yep. I was going back and forth to class because, hey, it was Thursday. I didn't need to be driving until I had to move my car on Tuesday to get it to the right side of the street for the street sweeping. Like yep. get off my case. Like this, the, I, I genuinely do not understand where the 72 hour rule is coming from, but uh, the city council members, uh, all except for Mike Bonin were absolutely hell bent on preserving it. And that was what they used as their justification for opposing AB 516. Uh, so what's, one of the interesting, interesting about that one at, real quick oh, yeah. is, is back when <laughs> about a, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, yeah. you, you were able to park on the aprons and like the side of the sidewalk, like where the easement is, like generally where there's little grass and stuff, as long as you weren't blocking the, the sidewalk completely for ADA access. And in places like Koreatown, like when you were talking with Marquise Harris Dawson, you know, the nightmare of parking in Koreatown came up when y'all were on uh, mm -hmm. air talk with Larry Mantle. Of course. And all I could think was the city of LA made it illegal to create these extra parking spaces, which made it even harder to park there. Like, so when Marquise was like, oh, Parking in some of these neighborhoods is a nightmare, and you're like, wow, I wonder why it became harder. Is it maybe something that you all did? 
like let's underfund public transit so everyone has to have a car and then let's also not have any place for them to park their car and then we'll tow their car if they don't need it every day i uh, just eh. cause and effect how does that yeah. work chris so i mean i could explain it to you but we don't have the time on here um <laughs> but what what one of the one of the fun things that was going on with uh with this bill that's being introduced first of all uh, this was simply a question of whether or not the city should be endorsing a piece of legislation, uh, supporting it or opposing it at the state level that they really don't have any input on uh, other than to you know kick and scream and hopefully convince the state legislators to make a, uh, a change in their favor. Um, there was a, an amendment put into the motion to uh, oppose the motion unless the state legislature decides to remove the 72-hour limit. Uh, but that doesn't seem likely to be the case. That's going to yeah. happen. But the discussion around all of this, it, it was literally every single uh, legal aid foundation or homelessness advocacy group, anybody who actively is doing anything to support the homeless came out in support of AB 516. So they were opposing the motion. It was really fun because it was like uh, there was a lot of double negative stuff going on. But the uh, the folks that were all on the side of supporting AB 516 were, were the, all these people that were uh, are genuinely trying to do a good thing for folks because it is at its root an anti-homelessness uh, or like a homelessness prevention bill. Because yeah. when you look at it, like you look at the statistics of what it is that people are dealing with here in this country and what is it, 40% of all Americans, not just folks in Angel Los Angeles, uh, but 40% of all Americans can literally not afford a $400 medical emergency. And when 90% of your income is being spent on rent, as is the case for what, 720,000 folks living in the county of Los Angeles, when 90% of your rent or your income is being spent on rent, you do not have the capacity to deal with a $400 medical expense and a tow by the city of Los Angeles or the county of Los Angeles is going to cost you, I believe, $387 is the minimum cost yep. if you recover it the same day. If it sits for a week, it jumps to something like almost $700. Uh, and if it sits for two weeks and it jumps to like $850, the numbers keep going up. And this is a fee that folks just simply cannot afford to pay. And if you are sitting on the situation where you're already spending 90% of your income on rent, if, you, if your car gets towed, you're probably not going to be able to get it back. And if you can't get it back, you probably won't be able to keep getting to your job. And if you yeah. can't get to your job, you sure as hell are not going to be able to afford your rent. And then you're going to end up on the street. And yep. it, was also, it was incredibly powerful. Like, as you mentioned uh, earlier, I got to go on... Uh, KPCC uh, on Wednesday morning and have a bit of a discussion uh, with Marquise Harris Dawson about this bill. Uh, and we got some fun audio clips out of that one talking about how he does like the work that we're doing here at Ground Game Los Angeles. And yeah, that uh, was cool. Really have it was fun, right? Um, basically, there's there we have a fundamentally different reading of what this bill is trying to do, and I uh, I trust what the lawyers are saying rather than the the one legislative analyst office from the city, uh, which disagreed with literally all of the lawyers, including the ACLU, uh, Public Council LA, uh, the Los Angeles Legal Aid Fund, 
the Public Defenders Union out of San, uh, Sacramento or San Francisco, or maybe it was the whole state of California. Uh, point is that literally all of the other lawyers are saying that our position is right and not agreeing with what uh, Marquise Harris Dawson was saying. So I'm going to go ahead and side with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, it, it this seems was, this was like a, a very, it seems like just trying to continue this like punitive practice. Um, and, and one oh, where like, sure. I thought it was weird when a lot of folks were objecting and saying, Oh, well, you know, if you can't tow my car because I'm not registering it, um, why don't I I'm just never pay register for registration? It? Well, and it's also one where like, it doesn't protect you if you're driving. Like if you get behind the wheel of that car and drive it on the street, the police can and will seize it. Uh, for having an out-of-date yeah. registration. You know, this this is particularly aimed at helping people whose cars have become their home. Yeah, and on top of that, it's it, it'll also help people who you, you need their car and they just haven't been able to pay parking tickets or whatever else is going on in their life, or maybe their registration has slipped out. Like, the point here is that if the car is legally parked, you cannot tow it just because it's got unpaid parking tickets. You cannot tow it just because it's been sitting there for more than 72 hours and you cannot tow it uh, just because all of the neighbors are complaining about it because that's definitely one of the things that's happening. Um, yeah. It's or, or and then, the, you know, the other one being the unpaid register or the uh, expired registration. But the main complaints that were being heard in that council session and it was it was really just jarring to hear it was people talking about uh, the uh, unsafe conditions on their streets and their neighborhoods. One woman went even so far as to say that her neighborhood was was wonderful and nice and tidy until the immigrants started moving in, and then suddenly people are living in their cars. And Ooh. it was just, it was just galling. It was like, what is going on here? And uh, then it turns out that we saw that there were a bunch of uh, Facebook posts coming out of certain groups from within the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, encouraging all of these folks from the San Fernando Valley to come down and uh, protect the police's ability, the police officer's ability to tow cars in their neighborhood that they find to be a nuisance. And that was, and, and for, was for anyone shocking. who's... And for anyone who's interested, it was specifically the Devonshire Police Department uh, that was making Correct. these statements, and uh, that seems to violate. Well, it was the Devonshire like, office out of the LAPD, but yeah, yes, uh, and it, it, it well, Devon, yeah, sorry, uh, the, not the department, but the the Devonshire um, um, Bureau or whatever you want to call it, um, whatever. It but is, this yeah. is something that probably violates some campaign finance laws. Um, you know, the police One in and of think. themselves aren't allowed to like advocate for or against legislation. They are allowed to have well-funded police unions and police beneficence associations that do that for them. Uh, but specifically, they're not allowed to do that. What I did want to talk about also, which ties into this, is the infamous uh, LA City Ordinance 85.02. So 85.02 is the ordinance that says you're not allowed to sleep in your car. Basically, between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m., you're not allowed to be in your car asleep, um, or that's a crime and the police in many cases can uh, seize your car for you living in it. Uh, now, this is a little bit of a weird one because it's not enforced very strictly across the city. Uh, it's also one Correct. where what the city keeps doing, uh, especially city council, is they have the city attorney draft a new ordinance to extend this by six months. So for the past two yep. years, 
in December and then in July, they get together and they pass an extension to 8502, um, which I, there's got to be some gamesmanship going on around that that I don't fully understand as to why they don't make it permanent or they only do a six-month extension. There's, there's some sort of oversight that they're dodging there. But so after extending this several times, uh, they're up to extend it again. And the person who's yep. the mover on this, like... It, it, it's Mitch, uh, Mitch O'Farrell, uh, and it's, it's weird Mitch. because, like, after you know being the second on the empty homes tax, he's now like, "Hey, let's criminalize people who have no place to sleep other than their car," which is probably the biggest asset that they own if they're not living in a home anymore. Um, yeah, and this also comes on the heel of his district, uh, CD thirteen, and specifically in coordination. Uh, well, or it's not really coordination and partnership, but they, they rolled it out at the Hollywood <laughs> United Neighborhood Council meeting where they're now going to be having unarmed street vending enforcement teams walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard, right. especially the Walk of Fame. Uh, so these folks will not have guns, uh, which is kind of good, uh, but they can make that, arrests. No, that's good. That's definitely good. Yeah, but they still can that's, make still, arrests. But not and guns is good, but yes, you're right. It is, but they're also <laughs> going to have like a direct line to the cops who do have guns, and if you object at all to being arrested for trying to like... Um, you know, sell something sell on Hollywood Boulevard or like sell, you know, bottled water or whatever if you don't have the license to be vending there. Uh, the guys with guns will definitely show up to help them affect the arrest. And also, like, once you get arrested, there, you know, there's no bid jail, as it were. Like, they're going to send you to regular LA jail. Um, so, this is a, a little bit of a, a uh, you know, showing their true colors again, where we have some of the city council members coming out in favor of like cheaper housing and more accessible housing, but at the same time criminalizing people who are trying to make their money um, by smell selling small cash items on the street and also people who like need to live inside their car. And this also ties into the safe parking that we were talking about a little bit earlier. And with AB 516 and 8502, you know, the, the one of the solutions that's floated by city council and by service providers is the safe parking program where empty parking lots at night are turned into places where you can go and sleep in your car. You have access to services. You have access to a restroom and hygiene facilities because like most cars don't come with showers. Um, and so yeah. the problem that the city has right now is there are only 300 safe parking spots. And I don't mean like parking Across like lots. lots. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are 300, lots, 300 spots total. Yeah, 300 spots in 10 lots. And the city's looking to double that in the next like six months to a year, which would give us 600. But we have 16,500 so people small. living in their car. Like this is... Literally a, a drop in the bucket as far as what the actual need is. And so people who are caught out are getting squeezed at both ends. Like they're facing criminalization oh, on yeah. the one hand. They're facing waiting lists to get into safe parking on the other. And in the meantime, they're facing having their car taken. They're facing being arrested. You know, if you're living out of your car, you're not getting like a good night's rest every night. If a cop comes to no, co try and tow your car... Well, if, if a cop comes to tow your car, you might object in like a way that the cop doesn't find completely rational, and then you're facing a violent yeah. arrest. Like This is literally just a formula to keep people on the streets and to punish them for not having enough money. Like we, We're kind of doing half measures towards a fix. Like Even if we get the empty homes tax, that's not getting voted on until 2020 by no. the people and won't be into effect for And it's absolutely not going to be a panacea that's going to fix all these problems. It's just simply exactly. going to help alleviate some of the stressors and provide a revenue stream. Like yeah, this, All of this stuff is extremely complicated. It's going to take a ton of work. 
And I don't know that the city council members are being like malicious when they're pushing these things like the 8502 ban uh, and opposing AB 516. I really want to hope that they're not being malicious with this, but the consequences of these decisions are that people are suffering and dying on our streets. And it is shocking that they've allowed it to continue like this. It is a gross failure on their parts. They need to do something and stand up against it. And it, it, I, I mean, yeah. well, it's it's one thing also where like, you know, we we're we're seeing uh, this over reliance on criminalization. We're seeing this over reliance on getting people criminalization off the street. doesn't work. Well, we're we're seeing this reliance on those strategies because the people who are bending the ears of our city council are the people who own houses and have money, and they want to see their neighborhood spick and span in you know nice little boxes with nicely groomed lawns. If you want to change this, folks, you have to start yelling at the people in power. Like they will listen. They're beginning yeah. to come around. Like Bonin isn't you know pushing this stuff. Because he's having, you know, like just a flash of enlightenment, he's being pushed by community groups. He's getting better information. He's getting people showing him that there are options. And not only there are options, but he's got the political support to do this. You know, there is a yeah. critical mass that we can reach that's going to to make these folks listen to us. We're beginning to get there, but we need more of y'all. You know, showing up at city council meetings, showing up at board of supervisors meetings are not convenient. For some reason, they plan those during the workday when you're probably at work doing your job to pay the rent but if you can take a day off to go and make public comment if you can like see the agenda item that you want to talk about that can have an impact there are also ways for you to go to the city council website and put in electronic comments um it's not as clear that those do have as much of an effect as like standing up and and being seen and like looking your city council member in the eye but it doesn't hurt and it's very low bandwidth activity and the more you can do that the more impact we're going to have um so this one like absolutely yeah we're going to keep you know pushing this one and harping on it for a while because the the housing crisis uh is going to roll on unfortunately uh another crisis that just keeps rolling on through southern california is our oh, incredibly yeah. violent police officers. So, Chris, we're, yeah. we're getting into your favorite segment, uh, the cops, no. you guys. Because um, this was, these last week has this been... Is, this is a, a sadly recurring sent statement, segment of our podcast. Let's, let's just go ahead and say that. We're going to make a recurring segment of our podcast called Cops, You Guys. Yeah, and this was an especially deadly week. So let's... let's Let's go into this one, and uh, we're not going to feel good about this. This is never fun stuff to report on. Buckle up, folks. Here we go. On June 7th, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department killed three men in less than 24 hours. Their names were Jose Salvador Mesa, Ryan Twyman, and Edwan Stamps. I apologize for stumbling there. They were 35, 24, and 27 years old, respectively. And, and I got to say, I got to hop in real quick on the, the Ryan shooting because I've been kind of looking for um, the, the details on this one. He, there were 33 bullets fired by two officers uh, who did not identify themselves. Like, this shooting is so absolutely ridiculously bad. Like, literally two cops walked up to a door, said we, or walked up to a car, rather, opened the car door, said, we see a gun, fired off every single bullet that they had, uh, killing Ryan, wow. injuring the other man in the car. Uh, there was no gun in the car. There was no weapon. These two men were completely unarmed and were just executed by sheriff's deputies for the crime of sitting in a car in a neighborhood. Well, one of, one of them was executed. The other one did survive, but he was 
uh, uninjured and was detained under suspicion of apparently assaulting an officer because this all makes a lot of sense. So uh, let's let's go back to the top here. Uh, this is very emotional for us, and we apologize for being a little bit disconcerted in it because or, uh, I'm not. This is bullshit. What we're doing. I, I no, I mean, in terms of like laying out the story for folks to listen Fair to, enough. we're going to jump around a bit because it's really upsetting. Um, so the shooting that happened in San Gabriel, which is the uh, incident with Jose Salvador Meza, started early in the day when a woman called to the San Gabriel Police Department uh, reporting that an armed family member, uh, again, Jose Salvador Meza, 35, was causing a disturbance. When the police arrived, shots were exchanged and the sheriff's department was called as a response. A standoff ensued that included fireworks being thrown, and this was all being captured on camera uh, by news helicopters, and it was being streamed all over our airwaves because, of course, there's nothing that the poli- that the uh, news media likes more than a spectacle. Uh, eventually, bleeds, Salvador tried... Exactly, especially if there's fireworks involved in the middle of the day. Uh, eventually, Salvador tried to leave the home. Uh, there was like a fire that started with the whole... It was a mess. Uh, he tried to leave the home carrying a shotgun, at which point a deputy shot four to five rounds at him. He was pronounced dead at the scene, though it was unclear if the fatal wound was self-inflicted or if it was caused by deputies. This is in reporting that I was reading earlier. I believe it was on KTLA, but I don't remember precisely. Um, But how is it possible? Like, presumably, if you saw a self-inflicted gunshot wound from a shotgun, you're going to be able to identify that that came from a shotgun rather than from a 9mm pistol. Like, what what is going on <sighs> i mean it's also right, one where, to... where uh meza was uh unhoused and had uh you know his family yeah. knew that he had some mental illness going on some emotional disturbance uh when the situation started you know we don't send mental health crisis teams we send guys with guns and they're not the ones that are going to escalate this yeah and so ultimately you know a man was executed because he was having a mental health episode and also like it, Meza did have access to guns and how he got that is is kind of a separate issue but it's one thing we keep coming back to where we don't treat mental illness and we have a society of washing guns this is just a recipe for getting people killed it's like real bad. these are fundamental societal like uh, breakages that we're not addressing and it, not to give too much sympathy to the cops but there's something to be said that we ask the police off uh, we ask the police to solve a lot of problems that they're not qualified to solve in a lot of ways. So, like, as sad as this is, it's not surprising. You know, if if you send somebody who's trained to shoot at something that's a threat to solve a problem with somebody who's not able to be reasoned with or needs extra help or could be dangerous, you're going to end up getting a violent outcome every time. Um, that's all I have to say on that one. So let's let's talk about uh, Ryan Twyman, uh, the, the story that upset me so much because this just... You know, it, it, it along it's, with what happened in Memphis shocking. this well, along with what happened in Memphis this week, I'm just like, oh, yeah. stop effing yeah. shooting people, stop shooting young black men like this. It's I, stop it. This guy was very young, uh, was not a danger to the cops, and this whole story just boils my blood. Absolutely. So. As you said, Ryan Twyman was 24 years old. He lived in Compton. He was killed in Willowbrook. Uh, Twyman and another man, also in his early 20s, were sitting in a parked car at an apartment complex in San Pedro uh, at 132nd Street, where they were approached by deputies. Uh, This area is located in the... um, 
the unincorporated portion of Los Angeles County and therefore falls under the jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Department. Shortly after deputies approached the vehicle, one of them unloaded multiple rounds into Twyman's chest. This is what the early reporting said. Mm. Uh, he was pronounced dead at the scene. The other man in the car was uninjured and was detained under suspicion of sus- assaulting an officer. So it's now coming out. You said 33 rounds were fired? Yep, 33 rounds. That is... I mean, I just I have no words for how. Well, there was that, the there was the the to rapper, reload to do that. Uh, no, it depends. I, I mean, a they can carry multiple guns. Like cops often have like a backup, but also I think that they don't necessarily have to follow the like ten round mag uh, rule that California has that they can carry oh, more guns. But yeah, the the reporting I've seen is is thirty three rounds that were shot at him, and this is. Well, that may like that is a lot of bullets. Like, keep in mind the the uh, his name is escaping me because I'm doing this off the cuff. But the rapper who was shot in Vallejo, uh, you know, six cops Nipsey fired Hussle? fifty. Uh, no, not Nipsey Hussle. Um, oh no, the sorry. one who was oh, shot by right. by cops in Vallejo. Yeah, he uh, fifty five <laughs> rounds totally were fired in three point five seconds. Fifty five round. Oh yeah, my. and the city of Vallejo just had their they hired a private consultant to like investigate and big square quotes around investigate. Uh, and found that six officers firing, firing 55 rounds in 3.5 seconds was reasonable. Turns out that he had an airsoft Ow. gun and he was asleep in the car. Like, he he was asleep in the car and the police were trying to get him to wake up and one of the cops saw a gun and as uh, as this young man was, like, waking up and, like, kind of groggily trying to get his his bearings on what was happening because six cops were pounding on his windows made a motion that one of the cops said was threatening, and then they all just opened fire, like every single one of them. And if you've seen this video, it is incredibly shocking and disturbing. Uh, but these really itchy trigger fingers are really scary, especially when the city is going to bend over backwards to say, oh no, that was okay. You know, like here in Los Angeles, one officer, one officer since Jackie Lacey took office in 2012, will eventually go to trial sometimes in the next few months, uh, whether or not he actually gets convicted for shooting a man at a gas station. And he's not even facing first-degree murder charges. He's facing manslaughter charges. Like, the cops have a lot of leeway when they fire their guns. This is why AB 392 was so effing important. And, like, every one of these stories we go through is just going to show why watering down AB 392 was a terrible, terrible move. Um, but yeah, let's move on to the the story of uh, Etwine Stamps, um, which is another so just mind-boggling story. It, it it so this one is still very confusing as to what the hell happened. But twenty-seven-year-old uh, Etwine Stamps somehow ended up in the front seat of a patrol car, purportedly with a gun. Whether he had that gun when he got into the car or he got it from the car, it was very unclear as to what happened. Um, he was shot multiple times because, of course, he was shot multiple times. They're always shot multiple times. That's what happens. <sighs> uh, sheriff's deputies had seen Stamps, quote-unquote, acting suspiciously at around 4.30 p.m. and decided to follow him. It's unclear how he ended up inside the patrol vehicle or where the gun came from. Deputies are saying that they were fired upon first. Uh, again, really unsure how that happened. Uh and then they returned fire on stamps. I'm, I'm, this, this whole thing is just doesn't make any sense. 
killing him inside the patrol vehicle. That's the part that just I cannot get over is he ended up in a patrol vehicle six hours after they started following him. Something happened. There was some kind of an exchange. They're not telling us all of this story because the pieces that have gotten out fundamentally do not make sense together. They started following me at 4.30 p.m. The shooting took place at just before 10.30 p.m., about six hours after they started following him, and he died. He was literally shot in the front seat of a patrol car. There are bullet holes all over that car, and he died in the front seat of that car. I am just completely... I, I don't have words to describe what... What is going through my mind? How does he end up in the front seat of a patrol car and then get shot? Like, what was the exchange that led up to that? What happened in those six hours? Like, that's a lot of time where we're not following him and harassing him. So, uh, here, let's, let's, there's, there's a, there was something that came through on the police scanner. I'm going to read it real quick. Quote, okay. Everybody be advised. Suspect is down. Suspect is inside the patrol vehicle. Someone can be heard saying, we have uh, numerous deputies that are holding the suspect at gunpoint. He's going to be seated in the front seat of the patrol vehicle. There's going to be a 417 in his waistband. That was a recording from a police scanner that was taken during the incident uh, shortly before 10.30 p.m. So, so wait, we're uh, supposed to believe that this guy fired off rounds, which would have heated up the barrel of that gun, and then he shoved it he into it his waistband. In his- <laughs> he took a very hot gun and shoved it into his waistband? I, I, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. That and also, like, how would he have fired at them, got shot back, and then put the gun back in his waistband? Like that, I'm, I'm so confused on that one. There's so many pieces that just don't seem to make sense here, and like just basic logical leaps. And this takes me back to Eric Rivera, like when he was shot for holding a squirt gun. When you read the actual final report. The two cops that were there that shot him, they each report him holding a different colored gun. One says black, one says silver, and they each report it in a different hand. One says his right hand, one says his left hand. It turns out it was a green squirt gun that was in his left hand. Uh, Neither cop's, like, recollection of the events immediately after the event happened lines up with reality. Like, there's a reason why we've learned to be skeptical of eyewitness testimony, and that's because the human brain lies to you a lot and fills in a lot of gaps that you don't immediately recall or catch and like this is one of the problems with having cops that are always always armed like if you've got that gun to go to and your brain panics and you pull it out you can't unshoot that bullet yeah i mean uh, yeah i I genuinely don't have anything else to say on this one it's it's just so screwed up and Um, then uh, cap all this off yeah, let me let me. I'll take this one to take a little bit of pressure off it. you. So uh, to Thanks. end out this uh, terrible week, so a week after LAPD and LA County Sheriff's Office killed five people, uh, there was a shooting Friday night at a Costco in Corona. Uh, three people were injured uh, when an off-duty officer fired his weapon, apparently after some sort of an altercation in the middle of a crowded Costco. Because like 7:30 on a Friday at a Costco, like there's a lot of people there. Um, a lot of people doing their shopping, a lot of people like buying the, the pizza because Costco pizza is good. Um, one person was killed. It genuinely is very good. <laughs> it's it's sc- kind of scary. I'm trying to bring some levity to this because this is such a, a ridiculously terrible story. But so this uh, off-duty officer got into some sort of an altercation, decided that he needed to use his gun, uh, started shooting, 
injured two other people. He himself was injured, and another man was killed. Uh, the off-duty officer was taken into custody at the site at the Costco, but then was released without being arrested, pending further investigation, because they want to figure out whether or not he was acting in self-defense. And this one just kind of pulls exactly all these... how they treat everybody else that's not a cop when it happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, um, you, you know, Etwan Stamps... Clearly, you know, he can't be acting in self-defense, but, you know, firing into a crowded Costco, uh, that that could be self-defense. But so we're waiting to get more details on this. The, the thing I want to kind of, like, touch on, and this is something that one of my favorite podcasts, Citations Needed, talks about a lot, is when we look at the language that's used in these stories, and the initial reporting on this said that a, an off-duty officer was involved, oh, yeah. but didn't pin him as the original shooter, but was just like, the oh, he fired his gun, too. As the details came out more, it became clear that, like, he was the shooter. Because in the original stories, they said an off-duty officer was, you know, involved in the shooting, and then the shooter was taken into custody without connecting that it was the off-duty officer who was the shooter. Uh, and this is one where I, you know, how being does, as cynical how does this as I happen? Well, being as cynical as I am, you know, I don't think this guy is going to face charges. Maybe he will. You know, if you're off duty, you're not operating under color of law. You're not able to have a lot of the same protections that an officer who's on duty has. But at the same time, you know, prosecutors and cops are friends. They work together a lot. They have a working relationship. Prosecutors are loath to go after police officers because it will make it harder for them to work with the police officers on other cases. So there's a lot of structural problems that we have here. When it comes to prosecuting uh, police officers who shoot their guns, either off-duty or on-duty, and that's something we really need to look into, and we have had some proposals in the state of California to create independent officers of in, or independent offices of investigations so that the DAs who work closely with the police aren't also investigating the police in these cases, but so far Which those systems so haven't sense. been built. Yeah, and that's something we really do need to push for. If we're going to have armed police officers, the very least we need is accountability. And, you know, I, I'm coming yeah. back to AB 392 again. There was a really strong proposal to make it harder for you as an officer to use your gun on duty. Uh, that's been watered down under a lot of pressure from the, the police yep. unions and to the point where the ACLU and Black Lives Matter, Los Angeles, as well as the National Black Lives Matter, have withdrawn their support for AB 392. Like, California's use of force laws for police haven't really changed since 1872. We really need to update these, but we need to update them in a strong way, not a way that just provides more nuanced cover to, like, murder people. Because when you're here to serve and protect, the question becomes, who are you serving and protecting? And when we cover our last story, as we're going to get into, it's another shooting at a grocery store involving I mean, uh, LAPD. So this one uh, it comes out of the, the chase last year that terminated at the Trader Joe's, almost a year ago, it was last July, that uh, terminated at the Trader Joe's on Hyperion Boulevard in Silver Lake. Uh, the LA Police Commission has finally finished their years-long investigation of what happened. Yeah, I bet you can't guess what it was. Uh, yeah, so the Los Angeles Police Commission ruled on Tuesday that the use of force by an LAPD officer that left the store manager of the Silver Lake Trader Joe's dead was apparently somehow within policy. Hooray. And if you've seen if you've seen this video, it is so insane because like an LAPD accidentally is. released it. They they didn't mean to release the video, and that's the craziest oh, part. God. Is they released the body cam of the driver of the police patrol car, which I believe is the the officer Shinlin C. And so like. You see the 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 uh, the chasee pull up into the Trader Joe's, sprint into the front of the store, 
C jumps out of his driver's seat, open like opens his door, jumps out of his driver's seat, and just empties his entire clip towards the front of the most crowded grocery store in Silver Lake on a Sunday. It was just insane. Saturday, middle of the was it a Saturday? It was a weekend. It was a weekend when it was super crowded. Yeah. So uh, as you said, this officer fired multiple rounds into a crowded supermarket in the middle of the afternoon on July 21st last year, following a high-speed pursuit from South LA. 27-year-old Melita Corrado was shot in the chest by an officer. One of the five bullets he fired into the front of the store in response to shots being fired at him by Gene Evan Atkins. The officer's partner also fired three rounds into the store in response to shots from Atkins. So we're talking eight bullets from the cops in response to a guy shooting at them that none of them got hit, but they just decided to unload eight rounds into the front of a grocery store full of people with just glass panels on the front of it. Yep. The two officers who fired rounds in the crowded supermarket in the middle of the Saturday afternoon were Sin Lin C. and Sarah Winnens. Uh, though it was unclear in the report on the incident which of the officers it was that had actually killed Melita Corrado because, of course, we do not have actual accountability for our police officers. Also, well, and this is, this it is was one of the ones policy, that- so it doesn't matter. Well, this is one of the things that really drives me nuts about this particular shooting is ballistics science is really good. Like, you know which gun fired a bullet. Oh, it's, sure. it's, it's amazing the, the amount of forensic evidence that you can get from one of those things. Like, LAPD and the police commission, they know who fired that shot. They know which of those officers fired that shot. But they don't want to tell us. And that's the part Honestly, that's really crazy. Honestly, it doesn't matter. They're both just as culpable of being so reckless in their endangerment of the public that neither of them should be allowed to carry a gun on duty or off ever again. Well, and the fact that just, it's in policy, that like LAPD stated I, policy is when we're playing Rambo and trying to shoot a guy across a parking lot with a gun, which also, like if you fired handguns, they're not that accurate, especially when you're jumping out of a car and firing in a panic. Like it's really hard to hit your target. But it, the, the idea that killing an innocent civilian is within policy. And now to be fair, it seems like they did also hit Atkins because he was bleeding uh, and had to be treated by by medics once he finally surrendered. But instead of getting in there and offering aid to like Maleta Corrado, they let her bleed out while SWAT did their like we're army guys thing in the parking lot. And this gets back to the whole who are you serving and who are you protecting? Like Maleta Corrado is the exact type of person that you're supposed to be protecting in that situation like i don't want to pretend that gene atkins was like a good guy like this whole thing started yeah. because he was beating up his his former partner in the the uh in a, at a gas station parking lot and like kidnapped her in the car and led her on a very incredibly scary and intense chase by lapd but lapd yeah. at the same time engages in these high-speed chases that are just straight up dangerous like they- chasing someone who's running doesn't make that person stop running it's it's fighter you've got flight. a helicopter use the helicopter it yeah you shadow don't need to have more just all of this like you don't have to have cars speeding down the road causing reckless endangerment for pedestrians cyclists other vehicles all of these things, like the they, the driver can't get away. You have police helicopters. We have lots of police helicopters. You and I both lived around the USC campus before. There are yeah. tons of police helicopters. They're up there all the time. It is not that difficult for the LAPD to follow a car if they want to follow a car. 
No, there was, uh, I, it, uh, it was uh, probably about five or six years ago, uh, I was writing to meet up with some friends of mine. We were, we were going to downtown, and I was coming over from the west side, and they had been out on the east side, and were, were coming from that side of downtown LA. There was a high-speed chase. It was a guy in a Lexus. This one made uh, international news because the police oh, fired like 60 shots at him again. Um, but basically, they, they pit maneuvered him. He, his car spun out. Uh, the police, you know, had him surrounded. He got out. And I, I can't remember exactly whether he had a gun or not. But as my friends were riding by, they suddenly realized, oh, crap, there's a bunch of cops over there. And then there were gunshots. And they literally had to duck behind parked cars on the east side of downtown L.A. because the police hadn't bothered to stop anyone from coming into the area where they're going to unload guns at a dude. And it, it's, you know... When you're a civilian in LA and the police are doing their thing, they're not really protecting you. They they are putting you in a dangerous, dangerous situation. And there are proven methods for de-escalating these situations. There are proven ways so that it doesn't always have to come down to this sort of like Wyatt Earp shootout because we know that civilians die. We know that people die unnecessarily. And it's not something that's as simple as like, hey, we have to prosecute police officers. We really need to like tear into the way in which LAPD trains their officers and the way in the mindset that LAPD officers have. Uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah from Black Lives Matter LA had a really, really good essay that I'm going to put up in the description. Good. Talking about the cowboy mentality in LAPD. But this is something we really do have to talk about because as we've over-militarized our police, as we've trained our police officers to see themselves as warriors in this sea of chaos, that doesn't bode well for us. You know, when you go to other countries, other developed nations, and see their police officers versus our police officers, it's night and day. You know, having talked to Irish cops and British cops before, I don't get scared talking to them. They're not like there to be Rambo-level a-holes. When you talk to LAPD, you get the very distinct impression that the man wearing that badge considers themselves to be more valid than you are in that situation. And it becomes scary. It becomes intimidating. It makes it impossible for communities to work with the police because nobody wants to talk with them. Like, there's... You know, none of these shootings happen in a vacuum. They all come back to a root. And while LAPD has made some good strides, I'm not going to lie, they're less violent than they used to be, there's still so much work to do. You know, we're not in yeah. the, the, the Chief Gates era of kicking in heads and beating people with batons and causing uprisings in South LA, but we're also not at a point where LAPD is seen as a beneficial or, or trustworthy actor in a lot of communities. And that's not on the community. You know, that's on the cops. They've got to be doing yeah, more, then, not just to build bridges, but to like show that they're actually good to have in your neighborhood. And that fundamental lack of trust is so detrimental to all of these communities that are impacted because it's been shown. I mean, this is one of those things that comes down to the, the whole situation with ICE as well is like, if you don't think that you can trust the cops, people don't report the crimes to the cops. And then yep. folks who are doing horrible things when it comes to domestic abuse, uh, assaults, all of these things, like if you don't trust the cops to be good faith actors, people end up in incredibly dangerous and violent situations, folks end up dying because they believe that if the cops show up, like, oh, maybe they're going to bring the ICE agents with them. Maybe the folks that are wearing this, the jacket that says it's police on the back, actually, they're, they're part of La Migra. Like, like, what the hell 
are we doing? And then on top of all that, like if you're in a black or brown community and you're calling the cops for something related to any kind of a, a, an incident going on, you should not call the cops because if you do, chances are seemingly someone might just end up dead. Yep. And that is a needless, completely needless and senseless escalation that we have seen over and over again in this city and around the country, and it needs to stop. And it's it's it ties back into what I was saying earlier about you know a lot a lot of unincorporated LA doesn't have an actual government outside of LA County Sheriff's Office, and if we're going to have a civil government and a and civic government, yeah, well, if we're going to have a civic government that is so far removed from the everyday lives of the 12 million people who are living in this county, the four million people who are living in this city, they're not going to see effective governance. They're not going to see our democratic processes as a way to like solve problems and move towards a better, more right. stable community. This really has to be incumbent on all levels of government to be more integrated and to be more involved. And a lot of that has to be us expanding the outreach. Like we need more city council members. We need more LA County board of supervisors seats. Like we can't have 20 people controlling the lives of 13 or 12 to 13 million people. We, need more engaged yeah. government so it's something that isn't just some like you know gigantic somewhat phallic building on a hill where like all of this business happens that has nothing to do with your daily life we really need to see civic government happening in an effective way we've made some strides to fair, towards that it is it is a phallic building at the bottom of a hill but your point it's on a, it's on a little bit of a hill you know there's a little like grassy knoll that leads That's up to fair. it but yeah. <laughs> you know we we've made some strides towards it in in the neighborhood council system but it's not really enough even when it comes to neighborhood councils that's pretty far removed from most people's lives you know if you walk through any neighborhood in the city and ask them what their neighborhood council does most of them will be like i don't even know we had one of those so you know this is well to be fair they also can't do that much but yeah yeah i mean it's it's you know these problems are endemic and the signs of like a system that has been allowed to pull too far away from like our normal lives and this is something that like Absolutely. we as regular citizens have to begin seizing the initiative on doing like we yep. have to be the ones to build that power and to correct those systems because if not we see LA City Council as a, a place controlled by developers and controlled by the wealthy and something that's going to always serve their interests and it's got to be a back and forth between the people in government and the people in, you know, regular society. And it's something we're beginning to see some strides towards. Uh, but at the same time, you know, my experience working with Black Lives Matter LA and, and like help, helping them throw their vigils in front of Jackie Lacey's office, a lot of citizens outreach is treated uh, adversarially. And that's something that's really got to change. Um, but as, as we're kind of pulling a long one on this one, I think we're going to start to, to move yeah. towards uh, tying a bow on it. <laughs> and so, we thought we were going to have something short today. <laughs> yeah, we always do. But, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of good, good yelling uh. done today. Uh, but I did want to put something on y'all's map. So there are the first two Democratic primary debates are coming up on June 26th and June 27th. Uh, the Sunrise Movement is going to be hosting watch parties across the country. So if you would like to get Hell involved yeah. in that, either hosting one or attending one, uh, you can go to sunrisemovement.org slash change the debate. Uh, you scroll down and they've got the little interactive map. You just put in your zip code and it'll pop up a, a watch party near you. If there isn't one near you, you can go ahead and sign up to host one, get some folks over, do it potluck style, see the first night of the debate. I don't know that there are plans for the second night, which is the 27th, because, you know, 
half the country is running for the Democratic primary right now, so you can't have like <laughs> 25 people on one stage. Uh, at the same time, before I tie this one off, yeah. I'm just going to say it's really weird that techno-fascist Andrew Yang is on a debate stage, but actual former Senator Mike Gravel is not. Uh, so that's a really strange one. Uh, I have a feeling that this debate format is going to be really weird and really wacky. Uh, so this is, useless. you know, the, the primary season is starting off in crazy town, and I don't think we'll be diverting to Sanityville for a little while. So strap in for that Honestly, one. I was just going to say, as long as they don't do the thing that happened in the 2016 primaries where the Republican contenders for the nomination inexplicably all with because of Ben Carson, apparently just started lining up in the tunnel on the way out to the debate stage. Uh, that's a brilliant one and a half minutes of footage that I recommend everybody watch again. Oh it man, I forgot that one. It just shows you how completely insane all of this stuff is and that we've got a bunch of old guys on the Republican side who clearly have no idea what the hell is going on around them at any given point of the day. Yeah, it's and I mean, I, the Democrats aren't going to be that much better, I, I got to say. You know, of the, of the 24 <laughs> people that are running I'm right sure. now, well, the, of the 24 people that are declared for the Democratic primary, uh, 23 of them are white guys. Uh, and oh, yeah. that's a little bit weird. There's only two uh, women in there. And so, you know, again, as I've said, like, I'm yeah. not the biggest fan of just like add women in stir or add minor minorities well, there's, there's in stir. The women, but at the same time, Kirsten, like, well, there's a bunch of women, actually. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, you know what? You're right. Twenty one or twenty? Because yeah, yeah, we got Cruz, Cory Booker, we got Kamala, Gillibrand, we got yeah. Kamala Harris. There's yeah. uh, Tulsi. The, the, there's Elizabeth Warren. But we're yes, still overwhelmingly not 50, the majority are yeah, all white. We're still dudes. not seeing fifty percent female representation oh, no, in there. Not we're not seeing close. you know anywhere close to the minority representation representation that we need to be seeing in this. Like again, yeah. our our very powerful politics are like a selection of white guys who for all I know are just some random character actor that they're throwing his photo up there because like who can tell these dudes apart uh, but it'll be a good time Swallow. for y'all to Pick sort of on. like get familiar with these folks uh, figure out you know good drinking games to start playing because you're probably going to need that for the primaries um, but just other than that, don't, I don't drink have... the fracking fluid like Hickenlooper did it's not good for your health folks oh god yeah yeah he did that oh yeah well, maybe that explains his whole like brain fart over socialism isn't good. But as I was gonna say, anything, uh, anything you got to put on the calendar for next week, Chris? I, I, my brain isn't working right now. I'm, yeah, I no need to go recover. Yeah, you were you were patching concrete and stuff. You've got a valid excuse. Uh, but anyways, uh, thank you all for sticking with us through this one. Uh, we'll be back here next week, and also apologize on the. Uh, a uh, little bit of a late upload. Uh, we had some techno gremlins that sort of made it hard for us to get up on time. Yep. But, you know, onward and upward. Sorry. Thanks for listening.
Sounded but sorry better to be met. Thirty ten more. Thirty thirty ten more more more. Sorry better to be met. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more.